It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, a Thanksgiving week travel companion, a best of show with excerpts from some of my favorite conversations on the podcast so far. Was that just a fancy way of saying that this is a rerun? Uh, yes, basically it was. But it's a holiday week, and I did want to put out something longer to maybe keep you company as you kill time in an airport or on the freeway or whatever. Those of you listening from outside the U.S., just imagine you're sitting in traffic, but that you will soon be eating pie. Also, most of these excerpts are from the earlier shows in this podcast history, such as it is. So those of you who are newer listeners may not have heard it. And if there's anyone in your world who you want to turn into a what's the point listener, this may be a good place for them to start. So share it with them. Okay, here we go. We've got five excerpts of about 10 to 15 minutes each, and I'll be back briefly between each one to set them up. In the show description, you can see the lineup if you want to skip around. First up is astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, host of Star Talk and Cosmos, head of the Hayden Planetarium. You know who he is. Anyway, this starts with my question to him. Let's talk a little bit about the work you do and, and how data plays into mm -hmm. it. Do you still do active research? I try to. It's very hard because so many – I'm tugged at from so many directions and, and, and willingly. I mean it's not like – I'm not blaming anybody for it. It just is. And uh, I try to. So right now if it's a half a day a week, that's a good day for me. Uh, ideally, I'd bring it back up to maybe two days or three days a week, but that's not in the near future, but perhaps the mid future. And then I would recede a bit from the public eye. I don't, I'm in the public eye not because I seek it out. It may seem otherwise, but that's, it's not the case. Uh, if I wake up in the morning and the phone doesn't ring from the press, uh, I can have, I can get some work done. And then what, what's that work? What's your field? Oh, no. So I would I'd be writing books. I would be uh, continuing to analyze data. That's my fourth time using yeah, the word. Yeah, we're getting – don't worry. We're counting. <laughs> um, I'm part of a, an international collaboration which looks at data from the Hubble telescope mm -hmm. that has accurately recorded large-scale structure of the universe out to very distant galaxies. Uh, so that's, a, that's, that's been a fertile collaboration. But what does that mean? You roll up your sleeves and you're diving into an you Excel spreadsheet looking, or data. Im imaging? Or? Yeah, it's data. You're looking at data. And data are obtained by the Hubble telescope. So the Hubble telescope takes images. And then you want to know what do these objects look like? How bright are they? What is their color spectrum? You know, are they moving? Are they nearby? Are they far away? Once you gather this information, you pose questions that you can then answer from those data. I read a piece in The Atlantic a couple years ago that said the amount of data astronomers can now collect is doubling in size every year. Is that really? I don't know if it's true? every year, but it's I, I'd say every every three years. Maybe. And why is that? I mean, it might be every year. I didn't study the problem, right. but based on my casual awareness being in the field, I would say it doubles every few years. And what's leading to that? Uh, the speed of computers, the size of chips mm -hmm. that are getting the data. And the rate at which we can process the data once it's obtained. When, if any one of those is a laggard, then it holds up the whole operation. But once you get all three of those humming along, uh, by the way, we've been into big data from the beginning, long before anyone even knew the term big data. We have the universe we're measuring <laughs> here. So that in principle is the biggest data set of them all. At the museum, we have a, at the American Museum of Natural History, that's my day job. 
someone who uh, on my staff is manager of the digital universe. That's and their I, title. That's on their card. I, that is on his card. Wow. And I thought that's the coolest. That's the best. You bring that, whip that out at the bar. You know? <laughs> hey, baby, you know, right. So manager of the digital universe. And we gather data from around the world from telescopes and we make them coherent with one another because different data sets at different times don't always blend together into a coherent image or, or can be ha- compared in a meaningful way. So you, um, that, that's an effort to put them on the same footing. Now, when we write space shows and want to take you through the galaxy or out to the edge of the universe, we use real data for that. It's not an artist. The Hayden Planetarium used to have a whole artist's, uh, I don't want to call it artist colony, but it was, it's an artist's studio where pictures were drawn and painted and, and collaged and then photographed for a space show. Now it's all on the computer. And we're uh, using real data at that. You mentioned the Hubble. There's a, the, the next generation telescope is the James Webb. Is mm-hmm. that right? And mm-hmm. it is doing this really fascinating thing, which I'm probably going to butcher when I describe and you can correct me. But instead of using large, uh, very heavy mirrors, it is using what I've heard described as glitter, which is kind of throwing a bunch of reflective material into space, forming it into a reflective surface and then gathering all that information. But it comes in because it's not a flat surface. It comes in with all sorts of different reflections at different angles and then is processed by a very powerful computer after the fact. Did I get that right? It's it's 80% (laughs) 83% accurate. But it means that there's it's it's kind of this this upending this notion of instead of going to look for this one specific thing, it's let's just gather everything and then sort it and parse it after the fact. Well, the, when you're in survey mode, that's what you do. And survey mo- mode is a kind of a serendipity mode. If you only used the telescope to answer questions you posed in advance, maybe it's ready to answer questions you have yet to think of. How do you put it in that mode? You point the telescope at a random part of the sky and just scan the sky. And then the data sits there on the computer until someone with initiative says, I'm going to look at these regions of the sky that no one cared about that were just sort of drift scans on the telescopic mount. But all those things you mentioned earlier about more powerful telescopes and more powerful computing will let us sort of point and get more information coming back. At any place you point, you'll get more information. That's correct. So in your role as a public figure, how do you – this is something we think about at 538 a fair amount. You know, How do you – What think, does 538 mean? 530 is the number of, of votes in the Electoral College. Oh. And that's when Nate started doing political oh, started, polling yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. kind of what okay, his name was. Sure. And now it's just a number. Mm-hmm. And you have to write it out. You can't if – you, if you do it in 538, I think it's because we don't own 538.com. So we're very insistent on writing it out. So but, you hope they don't redo the districts and then you have more – yeah, the Electoral College, I don't think, unfortunately, is not going to go anywhere, <laughs> anywhere <laughs> anytime soon. Um, but when you're talking to a general audience about your work, how do you balance complex numbers and complex data and complex ideas and, and sort of make it translate for a general audience? The secret is I don't balance it. I just pick what I think they'll be interested in, and that's what I talk about, and stuff that's not interesting or has a complexity level that 
would make the conversation boring, I just leave it out of the conversation. Because if you're in conversation with me, it's not a lesson plan. It's not, oh, I'll test you this later. It's not, did we hit all the syllabus items? It's, are you in a position to become curious about the universe? Am I in a position to serve that? And to the extent that that matches and marries, uh, yeah, I, I've pre-selected what I think is really cool cosmic phenomena. But are there are there is there anything that got left on the cutting room floor, so to speak? I mean, it happens all the time here. Oh, we'd love to write about this, but we would have to get really into the weeds in order to explain it. Yeah, the cutting room floor. Hmm. Yeah, I. They're just topics that are just. It's not so much that they're difficult, although they may be in some cases. It's that they're just not it. They're just boring. I mean, you'd have to be a full up astrophysicist to get excited about it. And so I pre-choose. There's no reason to 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 labor you with that knowledge when at the end of the day, all that's going to matter is your curiosity. One of the other things we deal with as data journalists here at 530 is the kind of tension between finding patterns in big data sets versus talking about the outliers, which might tell a sort of different story. Are there? Do you get more excited by finding patterns or the one weird thing that kind of doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm pretty even, Stephen, on this. If there's an outlier, it, it's more likely that someone messed up <laughs> in their data taking than that it's something actually astrophysically interesting. It, the person who messed up is probably that. What was his name? The chief data <laughs> guru or whatever oh, yeah, their the, name was? Uh, uh, manager of the digital universe. Yeah. So if you have outliers, they're interesting because you always do a double take on them. And then you, you approach them with, skepti- with skepticism. Because if you've got something going with the rest of the data, you don't want to mess up your nice idea with an un, with an inconvenient point. And so you go at it skeptically, and then you say, well, if this is real, someone else should be able to measure the same thing. If nobody else can duplicate the measurement, it is an outlier. It, sorry, it is a an ignorable outlier. If other people start doing it and start getting similar results, then it's a fundamental part. And then it's a pattern. Of and the then truth. you explore it. Yeah, yeah. What's the best fight happening in astronomy right now? Best fight? Yeah. We don't fight all that much. Oh, but, you know, nerd fight. Nerd fight. Uh, I'll tell you why we don't fight. Because we we agree tacitly that if you have an idea and I have an idea, and those ideas are not the same idea, we're trying to account for the same phenomenon, either I'm right and you're wrong, you're right and I'm wrong, or we're both wrong. (laughs) And we know this. We have a self-awareness of this. So there isn't this susceptibility of... You know, having an argument and the person who argues best wins. What does that mean? No. What what should win is what's true out there. And how do we determine what's true? Use the methods and tools of science. We're at ESPN, of course, so um, I have to ask you a couple questions about sports. Uh, you wrestled in high school and college. You rode, yeah, I was captain of my high school's team. And you rode... And undefeated. Undefeated had, at, in high school. In high school, but not in college. Not in college. <laughs> Definitely not but in college. four years of college wrestling. Uh, four years of college wrestling, yeah. that's correct. Freshman, and sophomore, junior, senior. you danced a lot yeah. uh, back in the day. I've been on three performing dance companies. And I heard, did you really run a 425 mile? In, in high school as a senior. Before, uh, that's when I was a light 190 pounder. Uh, I was a heavy 190 pounder in college where you just lose weight rather right. than buff up. But... My strength to weight ratio, speed to, to strength ratio, 
was very high my senior year of high school. And I, I ran a four, I ran a four and a half minute mile. I, and the reason I know that is I was, it was just in training. It wasn't, I was not on the track team, but I always had a kick. I always had energy when other people didn't. I would say, surely there's some, because you know you have energy because when you finish the race, you didn't die. <laughs> right? Right. So you have energy. Use it. This is how, this was my philosophy. <laughs> and I never died at the end, but. In the training for wrestling, it included running and running up and down steps of stadia, running sort of middle distance. And so in a sort of two-mile run, my second mile was four minutes and 30 uh, – it was 425. My father ran track, by the way. Uh, he had the fifth fastest time in the world at one point wow. for what was then the 600-yard run, something – a long-lost race. But he ran cross-country in high school and college. I appreciate you using Stadia, by the way. That I don't didn't want to let that go by unnoticed. <laughs> um, but are people surprised when they hear that you were so into sports? I I th people. See, I'm not a small person, and so uh, we, we're so trained in our society. If you see sort of a black person with some body size, oh, it must have been an athlete. Uh, there are people who don't remember that I do science, but they recognize me in some way. So, Haven't I seen you on TV? Oh. I said, maybe, I don't know. Aren't you a sportscaster? So the, wow. the, the stereotype kicks in. So, so, so people, no, they're not surprised. But why is it hard for people? I'm assuming it's, I think it's hard for people to have it in their head that someone can be really nerdy and a really good athlete at the same time. There was a day when that was the case, but now they, I think they delight in the fact that that exists. It's not hard. They, I think they delight. They, they like knowing that there's something else you might do well. And, uh, and I'm, I'm honored by that curiosity, but it's just not. There's one video of me dancing that was smuggled out of the Christmas party. You know I'm going to go Google that right now. <laughs> and it's filmed vertically. And, I, and there's oh, some the worst. funny I'm... things where people uh, back out into a circle. Oh, no. And, and like... So I'm alone in this circle and people are clapping and I don't even remember the song, but, uh, their urge is to get me to continue to do it. So they hear that I was in a dance company. Oh, <laughs> you'd be a shoe in for dances with the stars. All right. You get the stars. Yeah, I get it. Okay. Stars. But I have no interest in, I mean, when I was dancing and wrestling, I was not doing science research. I wasn't writing books. No one was interested in interviewing me for about anything. That was a different chapter of my life. But you were in school and you were studying these yes. things. I'm just curious how you balanced those two. No, they were never balanced. When I was wrestling, I said I should be studying. When I was studying, I said, you know, I want to get back on the mat. So th there, is the, there is the psychological discomfort knowing you should be doing something else. And we presume that balance is a good thing. The very fact you ask the question that way implies that we should seek balance in our lives. There are whole philosophies on that, and so I'm, I'm not here to debate that. But what I can tell you is that when something is out of balance, you can get quite innovative in your attempts to resolve that fact. And in my life, I have resolved imbalance by creating other imbalances that brought me to new talents, to new investigations. And so life is always about how you were juggling and balancing things, but provided you're still getting stuff done, that's quite a fun ride. You know, you don't go to the amusement park roller coaster and say, I want to be balanced. No, you want to be as unbalanced as you possibly can because that's the thrill ride.
That was, of course, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Okay, let's move on to the next excerpt. This is Farai Shadea, who's long been one of my favorite journalists and radio reporters, and she is now fairly recently on board here at 538 as a columnist. We'll pick up this excerpt about a third of the way into our conversation after we were talking about our relationship with data hacks. Here we go. Here's uh, my question to Farai. I think what you're kind of saying is that we're living in the data age. We're creating all sorts of data. That data is likely to get hacked. And the place where the answers maybe lie and the protections lie is the fact that a single piece of data shouldn't be allowed to be this wormhole to all this yeah, information. Exactly. It's about the cross-referencing. And, about, and that's the sort of security angle. Like right. Not so, the, so, yeah. we need to stop every breach. Obviously, we can yeah, try we and do that. Yeah, we can't stop every breach. But it's more about, okay, what happens when information wants to be free? Then what? Right. So, so one is like this kind of private sector driven, like let's innovate new ways of people logging in and authenticating, often using encryption or, or cyber keys or, or things like that. And another one, another proposal is just like have a regulation. And this is specifically about the social security mm-hmm. number, like have a top down federal regulation saying that at no point should the social security number be used as part of a login sequence. A bank or whatever should never ask you for the last four digits of your social. And so that's a top down policy solution. And those are two different ways of approaching the same problem. We started the conversation. You talked about how we live our analog lives, but they're more and more infused with data. So let's talk about that. And and you, in one of your intercept pieces, posed this really fascinating thought exercise, which has been rattling around in my head since I read it, which is imagine that a buzzer goes off every time you generate a piece of data throughout your day. Mm -hmm. And as you point out, you would be hearing that buzzer all the time and probably in some unanticipated moments. Absolutely. You know, I mean, everything from if you're wearing a a Fitbit or some other kind of fitness tracker, there'd be buzzes going off all the time. But your data also your data is is kind of like a pet or something, you know, like it might be yours, but it also has its own life. So it goes off and does things without you. So your data, meanwhile, like in, in your bank account, your data is producing other data interest, you know, um, charges against something, perhaps a, an attack on your bank account from a breach. So you not only have the data that you're generating in the moment, like say you're swiping your credit card or you're wearing your Fitbit, your data is also producing its own data. Right. And so <laughs> most people would not be surprised that a buzzer would go off when they like swipe a credit card. But you point out, for instance, you like something on Facebook. Right. And you think, okay, that's a one directional thing. I've liked that thing on Facebook. But then you you log out of Facebook and all of a sudden Facebook is taking that one piece of information right. and cross tabulating it and finding Absolutely. other and building a sort of social graph while you while you sleep or right. while you go walk outside without your phone on you or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some of the advances that Facebook is making in terms of, you know, um, a patent it's defending that could be used to do predictive financial analytics based on your friends. Um, and yeah, so you wrote about this. So, so, so yeah. explain that a little bit. Yeah. So basically, um, there is evidence um, from from studies done by, you know, a business professor and others that that your online social connections can be used to help predict your financial outcomes. And so if you have a bunch of friends who are deadbeats, you probably are more likely to be a deadbeat, to put Mm -hmm. it that bluntly. And if you have a bunch of rich friends, you're more likely to have wealth. But 
there are also many ways in which your online cohort is not like your real cohort, you know, that you have all these people who it's like somebody's second cousin who you met at a wedding, asks you to friend them and you don't want to be rude and you friend them. So does that person's association with you online then reflect a legitimate, you know, understanding of what your social network is? But but this is not something Facebook is doing now, but it has a patent that it acquired in purchasing another company. Um, where there's some pretty detailed schematics mm-hmm. and and outlines for using social networks for predictive financial analytics like lending. So a potential lender or a bank would look at your Facebook graph to yeah. determine whether you're a reliable person. And, it and it could you... in the future. Right. This this is a, a possibility. And um, you know, the the thing is, I mean, Facebook. There's a reason why Facebook is one of the most powerful companies in the world. It is not just a social network. You know, I mean, of course, it's purchased Oculus Rift, but it's also purchased many other companies. And in some ways, you know, you could argue that it's evolving to have capabilities that are similar to um, the NSA in the sense of advanced, advanced facial recognition, which mm-hmm. is something they have been doing research on and publishing that research um, to be able to recognize people from back of the head shots, side of the face shots, as well as frontal face shots. And then also this, you know, this patent on predictive financial analytics. These are possible futures for Facebook. I'm not saying that this is what will happen, but it's very clear from the kinds of data that they are releasing about what they're doing. Right that they will have incredible capabilities to not only deal with you as a social animal, but as a financial animal. They're being subpoenaed many times in legal cases. Um, so your social graph, what we think of as your social graph, is actually also a criminal justice graph. It's a financial graph. It has many implications. But if you think about the lending question in particular, and I know mm-hmm. you're saying that it's a possibility. It's not right. happening right now. But if you think about the way that those decisions maybe were made in the past, mm-hmm. particularly for people who you know were coming from a disadvantaged socioeconomic background or whatever, I mean, those decisions were already biased and skewed and and unfair to begin with. So, would you rather have a bank? using you know their notion of what someone looks like uh to make a decision about whether to lend them money or something that that has a little bit more of rigor and and analytics to it well but see the thing is it's like data is only as good first of all as you know it's the garbage in garbage out so sure. first of all is the data actually good data. And then secondly, how do you interpret the meaning of data? So let's say, for example, I had a case where I had a student who was draining her own financial resources to help a family member in financial distress, which I'm sure was putting a temporary low on her financial viability because she was really pressed to the wall to help this other person in her family. Does that mean that she's not a good prospect in the future? You know, this is someone who's going to get a, a, a degree with honors and go on and lead her life. But, you know, many people who come from backgrounds where, They are, no matter what age, whether they're younger or older, they're sort of expected to help out people around them. It doesn't mean that they're not credit worthy. It doesn't mean that they aren't going to be able to fulfill their obligations, but they may have a moment in time where they intervene in in a process. And that some of the ways that we interpret data, particularly around people who are lower income, are pretty flawed. Um, as, right, and we're bringing all of those analog biases to the interpretation right. of that data. I agree with you that 
Um, we already have a flawed system. And will using the social graph as an analytical tool help or hurt that? Well, that's up to us. It's really a question of how evolved we are as humans. The right. data becomes um, somewhat secondary if the people using the data aren't ethical. Ultimately, um, the ways in which we use it is as important as what we develop because humans are brilliant and we can develop almost anything if given enough time. We're about to crack the genetic code. There's something called CRISPR, which is going to make uh, gene editing incredibly simple and s- terrifyingly so, frankly. Um, so we have the ability to do lots of things, but do we have the ethical capabilities to use them well? So how do we start to enforce that? Well, you know, I think that there are questions of enforcement, but there's also a question of simply surfacing conversations that need to be had. You know, I I am writing about the social security issue because I think that there's a whole conversation that's simply not being had. It's like right in front of our faces, but it seems perhaps trivial or simplistic to some people to discuss how we use the social security number, but we need to have that conversation. The same thing with genetic editing. You know, I mean, it's going to be a huge issue, but it hasn't really gone wide yet. You know, Mm -hmm. it's something that people in the science community are looking at, but everyone needs to think about this because when we look at the history of, you know, eugenics and the history of Henrietta Lack, whose cells were used to produce cell lines, um, you know, without her family's knowledge initially, you know, we, it's just ethical questions. I'm I'm certainly no Luddite. I'm very pro-technology, pro-science, pro-data, but I'm also pro-ethics. And, right. and I think that the way to reach ethical decisions is to surface the issues when you still have time to debate them. Farai Shadea, you can read her columns at 538.com. Moving on. Up next, Jeanette Sadiq Khan. She was New York City's transportation commissioner under Mayor Michael Bloomberg. And under her watch and Michael Bloomberg's, the city's streets transformed dramatically. The Bloomberg administration was known for its data-driven approach, for better and for worse. And here is Jeanette Sadiq Khan discussing how the city put down hundreds and hundreds of miles of bike lanes. So how many miles of bike lanes came in under your watch? Uh, almost 400. I had this vision of you and your team with like a huge map of the city on the table and looking over it with a big <laughs> magic marker and saying, okay, we're going to lay a bike lane down this road and we're going to lay a bike lane down this road. And what was the actual process of deciding where the bike lanes would go and how they would connect to each other? You thought I was like Robert Moses in a skirt, just, yeah. you know, doing the same thing. Well, I'm curious, what were you, you know, what were the tools that you were using to see how they would connect and well, where they would be placed? On the, on the bike lanes, there was a, a master plan you know, a bike master plan. And so that was certainly the starting point. But one of the things that we really felt strongly about was the need to create a biking backbone, a connected network Mm -hmm. of lanes. You know, in the past, what you had is like a bike lane here, a bike lane there. You know, you'd be riding in a lane and then it would suddenly end and you'd be dumped unceremoniously into... It's happened to me. It's one of the most kind of like dispiriting and scary things to happen is feel like, okay, this city is working in my favor. And then all of a sudden, I'm back in the wilderness. So we look to fill the gaps. You know, we, we provided much better connections across the bridges. We set up a very innovative protected bike lane network. It's the first uh, protected bike lane in the country. But deciding to put a bike lane on 
this north-south street versus this north-south street. Connectivity. Connectivity. And is that by looking at a map and modeling it? Or are you going out and walking it and and having people bike it and say, okay, I think it should be one block over? It's a combination. It's a combination. There's no one way to do it. You certainly start with the fundamentals, you know, on the map and, and trying to connect the network. And you're also working very closely with communities, you know, that are demanding this. And so there were a lot of communities that felt like they'd been lost in time. You know, they've been asking for this for many, many years. And for too long, the Department of Transportation had been the Department of No. You know, you ask for something, no, no, no. It doesn't meet the MUTCD, the Manual on Uniform Control Devices. And so the standard that just basically, you know, was this permission slip for no instead of a permission slip for yes. So we flipped that and we work with communities and ask them, what are the what are the problems that you're trying to solve? There were neighborhoods saying we want a bike lane here yeah there were neighborhoods saying we want safer streets we want a bike lane we need a bus lane you know, we'd like to have some green space to walk around in there's at least one instance i can think of where a community was not very happy about a bike lane uh, and you removed a bike lane is that right you you painted over a bike lane on bedford avenue in brooklyn was that your call uh, it was a call of the department yes yeah, certainly my call but what we did was in that instance there was also a much better connection on Kent. And so we were able to meet the concern of the community and also provide a much better alternative connection. But that was an example of a community feeling, you know, for lots of complicated reasons, like... There was a big part of the community that said they didn't want girls in flirty skirts right. going through this, you that know... That was the line in the media was that the right. Hasidic community in that neighborhood right. did not want people from Williamsburg in quote-unquote flirty skirts riding their bikes right. through their neighborhood right. and that's why they got it painted over right is that was that an unfair characterization no no that that's that was that was certainly the media's characterization of how it went but but was you know, that an unfair characterization well i think what really the was. thing that's very difficult is the media likes to you know fixate on controversy there's certainly a, a cultural change associated with updating your streets you know and when you think about it you understand it, and we listened, and we tailored our projects accordingly. But make no mistake, you put down bike lanes and you remove parking, you know, there's going to be controversy that's there. But you have to update your streets. You can't leave them frozen in time. Our streets were basically in suspended animation for 50 years, and we had to update this resource in order to continue to grow and thrive. Let's talk about that as a, as a sort of cultural issue the bike lanes but transportation in general you know i think it really is a sort of cultural clash issue in many ways it's about adding infrastructure but also about changing culture absolutely when i worked at a local public radio station here our list of the most contentious issues it was like and i this i'm not exaggerating here it was like israel palestine and bike lanes well actually you know that was you could combine the two (laughs) in the prospect park west bike lane controversy where one brooklyn paper said that this bike lane next to this park was the most contested piece of asphalt outside of the Gaza Strip. But why is that culture clash so hard? And was it surprising to you at the level of vitriol that you would get when talking about bike lanes? You know, you changed the, you know, my brother said to me when we were at the heat of this, you know, controversy, he said, you know, the scouts get the arrows. So you shouldn't be surprised that people are going to come after you. But at the end of the day, what we ended up seeing was people, first of all, voted with their pedals. They were out there. We saw cycling quadruple over 10 years. And the risk to cyclists was down 75%. So, you know, there was a safety in numbers effect associated with this. And the polling that was done at the end of the Bloomberg administration showed that 64% of New Yorkers 
supported the bike lanes. So you saw in a short period of time a big sea change, and I think it's because people really saw the reality of what that meant on the streets. I recently visited Montreal and I rented a bike. You know, within 30 seconds of biking around in Montreal, I just got this impression that, oh, here's a city whose bike culture is like five years ahead of us. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just a little more advanced. And you can just tell in the way that people interact with each other on the street, the way that bikers respect cars and cars respect bikers and mm -hmm. pedestrians don't jump out in front of bikes, which is a huge problem here it's in huge. New York. How far behind do you think New York is on that timeline? And do you feel like the culture changed at a rate that you were satisfied with? We're certainly, you know, we're five years behind them. We haven't, they launched five years earlier, right. you know. So I think that New Yorkers have really quickly adapted to it. And, and it's not only New York City. The thing that's interesting to me is how bike share and biking has taken off globally. There's 700 cities now globally that have bike share, 700,000 bikes. And so bike share and bike lanes have really become the mark of a world-class city. And that is a real sea change in transportation. And it's made our streets safer because these aren't bikes that you ride in the Tour de France. You know, these are heavy bikes. They're like 45 pounds, you know. So you're riding them kind of slowly. You're enjoying the city. And drivers also look out. You know, they see that there's a city bike rider mm -hmm. there and they, and they drive a little more slowly. And so I think it's really tamed some of our meaner streets. The culture change you know, will continue to evolve. I mean, it's not like we're at Copenhagen, right? And we never will be Copenhagen because we're New Yorkers. You know, we're, it <laughs> is not, jerks. we're not, yeah. Well, actually, that was the name of the safety campaign that we put together. Was um, was, it was a cycling education campaign. It was called Don't Be a Jerk. Don't Be a Jerk, right. Yeah. So we're, we're New York. We're never going to be anything but New York and we shouldn't be. One of the criticisms of the way that we treat biking uh, in this city is that, you know, you can wait for the cultural shift and there's this understandable sort of time that it takes for people to get used to all these different elements back on the streets. But for instance, you know, we don't aggressively ticket cars that park in bike lanes. Mm -hmm. uh, how much is the change going to come from sticks instead of carrots? Well, I obviously believe enforcement's a really big part of the equation. And so you can engineer streets differently you can you know educate about streets differently enforcement's a really important part of it and all of that is really fundamental to changing the how they feel about biking around whether they feel about walking around or driving around and it's sort of interesting because one of the most important ways that we use data was on safety you know you've got 6000 miles of streets in new york city and you know some of them really really dangerous but there had been no way to kind of identify where the really dangerous pinch points were and mm -hmm. so uh, we did this pedestrian safety and action plan study where we looked at 7000 crashes and looked at the ksi the number of people killed or seriously injured over an 8 year period of time and it gave us who was being hurt where they were being hurt why they were being hurt when they were being hurt and it actually became our sort of Rosetta Stone of safety and allowed us to pinpoint where we needed to make change and direct our resources using that data to more effectively design our streets. So using that model, we redesigned 250 uh, intersections and corridors. And the exciting piece to me is to see that strategy continuing on under Mayor de Blasio's Vision Zero program. Again, so this is a goal to have zero pedestrian deaths in New York City. Right. 
And was that something you feel like you could have had as a goal when you were transportation commissioner? Well, our goal was to basically cut it in half. And so we used the again, the study to start to make these interventions that got us to a point where we had the safest streets in 100 years. One death is too many. Uh, and, you know, traffic fatalities are a global public health crisis. It's like number nine on the list of global killers. Is zero an unrealistic number? You know, you have to set goals. And, and I'm really a big believer in setting big, audacious, ambitious goals. And so I think that as a goal, it's fantastic and it drives the resources accordingly. You know, today, Mayor de Blasio announced it's $250 million for Vision Zero. You know, putting it under an umbrella, branding it is a really important way of getting the message across that we won't tolerate this anymore. And it was the exact same strategy that we had under Mayor Bloomberg. I mean, we had the hit by a car going 40 miles an hour, you know, 70% chance you'll die, 30 miles an hour, 80% chance you'll live. Again, doing everything you can to say, this is not acceptable. Will you say that static? Because I actually remember seeing that stat and, and feeling like this is the most compelling piece of data I've ever encountered in right. my life. So if you're hit by a car going 40 miles an hour, there's a 70% chance you'll die. If you're hit by a car going 30 miles an hour, there's an 80% chance you'll live. And so, you know, that little bit of difference goes a long way. And it goes back to the importance of calming our streets and sort of making them a little softer around the edges for people. The data also showed us what wasn't dangerous on the streets. And cyclists weren't dangerous on the streets. In fact, meaning they were not causing... Right accidents of their own. The more cyclists on a street, the safer a street was. And in fact, we found that uh, streets with bike lanes were 40% safer for pedestrians. That's Jeanette Sadiq Khan, former New York City Transportation Commissioner. And up next in our highlight show is an excerpt from an episode we did around the anniversary of the Ferguson protests and the shooting of Michael Brown. Over the last year or so, one data angle that has emerged is the fact that there is very little reliable data around police violence and police interactions in general. Uh, this data is kept at the local level. It's hard to share. There are very few standards that go across lots of police forces. But there are now efforts, many of them amateur efforts, to gather better data to assess police violence and interactions between police and citizens in general. This excerpt features two people. Donovan X. Ramsey is a journalist, and then Samuel Sinyangwe is a data scientist and activist. He's generally affiliated with the Black Lives Matter movement. We'll pick it up with Donovan, and then you'll hear me come back in the middle. That's from the original episode, introducing Samuel. And another point, too, is that, you know, you have to also think, I think, uh, around the idea of police data collection. It's that um, officers have a uh, set of things that they want to know about any given police interaction. And then, of course, the public, you know, has a set of things that we want to know about an interaction. So, you know, a cop is thinking about, you know, where did this happen? Um, you know, who was involved? Does, does this person have, you know, priors, uh, things like that, because they're in the business of stopping crime and they want to uh, uh, work in that effort. But the public is interested in tying together um, incidents that really, you know, do do represent trends in saying, you know, what does this say about the way that we police, you know, nationally? One of those things that ties it together is, is demographic information. Yeah. So. Are the efforts that are going on right now to standardize, do they require that you enter demographic information about the victim and, and or the cop? 
Yeah. So that's something that the uh, Bureau of Justice Stats is working on right now. So, you know, they've gotten, you know, a lot of political will and a huge push from the president and the attorney general to really revamp, you know, their system. And they're yeah going to include uh, demographic information uh, uh, into the way that they measure police interactions. But what I think is also so great is they're looking forward to uh, measuring uh, use of force on a continuum from something as small as yelling to the actual use of a deadly weapon. And, and this is for any sort of uh, police interaction and not just, you know, a, a, a death in custody. So if there's a confrontation between a police officer and a citizen and it involves yelling, right? that gets coded, that, that data yeah. somehow enters the system. Absolutely. And it's because I think the uh, reasoning behind it is that, you know, it goes to what the relationship is between police departments and the community. And if we narrow our focus just on uh, use of a deadly weapon by a police officer, even something like a taser, then there are tons of interactions that, oft- that often end um, uh, deadly for people. Uh, I mean, you can take the case of Sandra Bland, for example, right? So if we're just looking at the uh, use of deadly force, the use of something like a taser, and she was you know, threatened with a taser but never actually tased, then, then we don't capture... But just uh, think about abuse. the challenge of trying to code an interaction like that. There's the stop. There's the argument. There's the threat. There's the arrest. Yeah. There's the jailing. There's the suicide. There's the history potentially of yeah. of mental illness. To try and put that in a database that's standardized yeah. seems like an almost impossible task. It's a huge undertaking. I mean, I think that um, that that we're at the point now where. Uh, we have to make some decisions about what we want to know about our police. Um, that's what the legislation is, sort of trying to get this very narrow set of, you know, um, um, data that that we can solve some problems with and answer some questions with. But I think that, you know, there are tons of constituencies that want a lot of different questions answered. And thank goodness there are many efforts. But I feel like this brings up a a, a paradox with regards to how we think of Policing, Because my sense is that the same people who want to track police and gather data and say we want to know every time there's a there's a, a confrontation, not just a shooting, and we want information on someone you know being yelled at or someone being threatened, those are in many ways the same people who are also saying policing needs to have more humanity. Policing needs to – community policing needs to come back. We need to return to a time when officers know their beat, officers are part of the community, and there's a real humanity divide that leads to a lot of these instances. So if you're telling a cop, we need you to code everything, everything you do in your community is going to become a data point. But then at the same time, we need you to be real. We need you to connect. We need you to know people's names. How do you square that? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I think that ultimately we have to rethink what policing is um, in our country. I mean, you have, um, I would say in almost every industry, sort of a, a, a push towards data and analytics to be more efficient and to sort of know more about what we're doing. And I think it's possible. I mean, I think that like you can have beat cops that are actually out um, uh, patrolling and doing a good job of, uh, of, of keeping the peace of being peace officers. But I think that, um, that it wouldn't hurt to have people within police departments that are tasked with, um, oversight over the work and actually, you know, using data in a smart, efficient way to say, here's something that we know, you know, numbers wise in a, in a quantitative way about the qualitative work that we're doing. 
Donovan X. Ramsey is a fellow at the progressive think tank Demos. You can read the piece he wrote about the varying efforts to gather data. Find a link at 538.com slash podcasts. As he mentioned, demographic information is particularly hard to come by when it comes to victims of police violence. And race is, of course, such a key part of this story. Samuel Singyangwe is a data scientist and policy analyst in the Bay Area, and he's one of the activists behind the site MappingPoliceViolence.org. There are these government efforts to change laws and gather better data, but in the meantime, there are the more crowdsourced efforts like Samuel's. He begins by merging existing databases and then tries to fill in the gaps. That usually starts with a search of local media reports that come out after someone's been shot. But that's often not enough either, and he needs to keep digging. Oftentimes, the media would not report the race uh, of the victim, although sometimes they would have uh, a short you know, local news clip that would show the neighborhood and some of the, they would interview the family. And so you could um, approximate based on that. But the most um, the primary source that we really used to fill in the gaps around race were basically searching the person online, uh, the name of the person, seeing if they had a Facebook profile. Um, that had obviously their name and same uh, city or location. Um, and when you look at their profile and their timeline, um, you can actually see it cut off at the time that uh, they were killed by police. And oftentimes there will be um, friends and family commenting and leaving, um, you know, notes about that person. Uh, another source was obituaries, um, where you can see, you know, the person died on this date, they have the same name in the same city. Um, and then through that process, usually there'll be a picture of them um, or extra clues in terms of who the person's family, uh, immediate family was that we could then use a follow-up search um, to help approximate the race. And so those are two of the main ways of um, coding for race among those records. The last one, which was the third method, was by looking at criminal records databases. So um, many of these folks had a previous criminal record, and in these databases, uh, you could see either a mugshot or uh, both a mugshot and actually uh, racial identification uh, of that person. Having to go to all of those Facebook pages and see them cut off at a certain date or read the obituaries must have just been heartbreaking work. It was extremely heavy, um, extremely heavy work, uh, but it was necessary uh, in order to really pull out and be able to identify uh, what's been going on in terms of race and police violence in this country. When you go to your website, mappingpoliceviolence.org, you see some of those trends presented. That is that is the goal of this project to to some extent is to make a, a rhetorical point and to present these trends. Want to talk about some of the trends that emerged and some of the mapping that you're doing? First of all, you know, the scale of uh, police killings is on a level that you know, before August 9th, we really didn't know about. Uh, so, for example, we know that about three people are killed by police every day. Uh, and uh, one black person is killed by police almost every day. So every it, it ranges between every 27 hours and every 29 hours, depending on the year. Um, I think another big crucial piece to this is the fact that police killings have been fairly constant um, over time, at least going back to 2013, which is as far as our data goes back. There are about 1,140 people killed by police in 2013, about 1,170 people killed in 2014. Uh, and so far this year, it's really on track to be a comparable uh, number of current trends continue. Um, so that's another thing to think about, the fact that this has been going on for a long time. 
what is new is that people are starting to pay attention. The videos are starting to shed light uh, on the context in which this occurs and the circumstances in which this occurs. Uh, so those are two key findings from a high level. I think, you know, digging deeper and trying to examine these things by race, you really find that you know, black folks are three times more likely to be killed by police. They're more likely to be unarmed. Um, when they're killed by police. I wonder, from a presentation standpoint, how you square the tension between trying to offer higher-level statistics and trends, but also tell a individual's story and honor an individual who had their life uh, taken from them. So it it really is both, right? We want to tell the truth um, in different ways to appeal to different audiences. And I think some people are going to um, particularly resonate with the stories and from an emotional level of what's happening to these individuals and other people are going to look to statistics uh, and trends uh, to give them a sense of what's going on. And so we really want to do both. And so what we do is um, we highlighted the stories of over 100 unarmed black people killed by police last year. Uh, and these really, you know, going to, you know, have a picture of the person, a long description of what happened, um, their name, you know, many of them leave behind, you know, children or loved ones. And so we mentioned that as well. And so I think, you know, we want to make sure that we're respectful of the, of the fact that this is, these are not just numbers. Each number uh, reflects a human being, a life that was lost. Uh, and they have families and they have communities that they are supporting, that they were supporting and that they were a part of. And so, you know, police violence is much broader than just the individual who was killed. Uh, it is the trauma that that causes. Uh, for everybody who was watching, whether in person or on video, uh, for the community um, and indeed for the country. Have you encountered resistance to these stats? Are there people out there who dispute them? Actually, no, we haven't. Um, I think people are receptive to this information. I think they get it now. We've seen it be reinforced by other um, databases using similar methods and similar data sources. So we've seen it from, you know, say the, uh, the Guardian's database. We've seen it from the Washington Post database. They're all saying the same thing. Uh, and they're finding that, um, you know, that black folks are more likely to be killed by police and that police killings are happening at a scale at which um, the federal government certainly wasn't telling. Is the Ferguson Police Department one that was keeping good data? Absolutely not. So if the Michael Brown killing had not gotten the attention it got in the first six to 12 hours, what would have happened to to that story? It would have been another one of the um, over 1,000 stories uh, of police killings every year that does not get uh, major national media coverage. So, um, you know, what was particularly alarming and shocking looking through all of these stories and these examples um, was that, you know, really there only have been a handful of these that have reach the level of national media attention that folks really remember their names and have seen the video uh, or know about what happened. Um, but there are thousands um, in this database that folks don't know. And a lot of those stories are similar as well. And by pulling out those similarities, we can start to learn and examine um, some of the trends in terms of how people are being victimized by police, uh, trends in terms of where this is happening um, and what needs to change. This was a project, even though it's a data project, it was a project really born of protest, right? So this really started um, with a series of questions that we couldn't find the answers to, um, questions that were so essential to activism, to uh, making the case 
for uh, systemic change. And those questions were, you know, how prevalent are police killings in America? Um, where are the places where there are hotspots of police violence? And where are the places that may be models in terms of um, being, police being able to do their job without killing people um, and that we can learn from, we can learn sort of what's working. Uh, and then the other piece is around, you know, what, how does being black in America impact your chances of being killed by police, um, which has been so central to the protest movement. Uh, and so, you know, we couldn't answer those questions without using the data. And so we had to collect it and analyze it ourselves. And I think the last point is around accountability. Um, now that we have the data, it really is now possible to hold policymakers and police chiefs accountable to actually reducing and ultimately uh, eliminating um, the number of police killings that are happening. You you mentioned the national movement. You mentioned trying to insert this into the conversation. So that gives us a chance to move to the next stat that you presented, which is 32 million more people dissatisfied with racism in America. Where does that number come from? So this number comes from, I got it off a recent Reuters article, which looked at a Gallup survey, uh, which asked the question, are you satisfied with the way blacks are treated in U.S. society? And they asked this question a couple of years ago, and then they asked the question again uh, in July, and they found 13% fewer people were satisfied, 13% uh, fewer American adults. And so that basically is a calculation looking at the population of U.S. adults, uh, and then 32 million is 13% uh, of that. And so that is the change that we've seen, really, um, in large part as a result of the movement and as a result of these issues being put uh, into the center of political and national discussion. I don't know exactly the, the right way to phrase this question, but does that count as a win for this movement? I think a win, it's hard to define um, if that counts as a win. I think ultimately the win is, you know, for police to stop killing us. But I think that counts as progress. It, it shows that um, protests are effective at really changing public opinion, at making uh, a large sets of society uh, aware and conscious of what's happening. Uh, and that is the first step to putting pressure on elected officials, putting pressure on media and putting pressure on other institutions to really respond to those opinions. Samuel Singyangwe of MappingPoliceViolence.org, and before that was Donovan X. Ramsey. And now, our final clip. This was one of my favorite conversations with Bill Arkin, a military expert who wrote a book called Unmanned, which is about the military's growing use, obsession really, with drone warfare. He does a really good job connecting the dots between how the military uses particular technology, drones, big data, so forth, and what that means for the larger questions about American military power. So this excerpt begins with him talking about some of the modern capabilities of drones. They aren't all these big predator drones with missiles and everything that you may picture in your head. A lot of them are much smaller and focused on day-to-day -day surveillance. Here's Bill Arkin. Yes, yeah, so basically the way these are built, if you think of a, a drone sort of like an iPhone, uh, you can put different apps on it. And that would run all the way from your full motion video, which we're all quite familiar with, uh, at, all the way over to, say, a hyperspectral imager in which it's taking uh, huge uh, amounts of data, you know, giga, giga 
pixel uh, information, and that data is uh, then uh, processed by machines and and compared to libraries of information, which then tell you what it is you're looking at because it's not visible to the human eye. So the first thing that this data, when it comes off of the drone and gets transmitted back, hits is a powerful processor processing machine. Well, absolutely. And there's a couple of reasons why. Okay. Every day, the U.S. military is collecting about eight seasons of the NFL. Thank you for putting it in sports terms since we're here at ESPN. (laughs) But what do you mean eight seasons of the NFL? Okay. If you took every game of the NFL and, and you recorded it for eight seasons, that's about how much data we're collecting every day right now. And you also point out eight, one of these drones is getting 84 million pixels per second of visual information. It can, yes. So now that the cameras themselves have become more and more sophisticated and smaller and smaller, you know, even let, let's give one example. It's a really simple one. Uh, some, about 2009, uh, the first drones started to employ high definition. Well, when you go from low def to high definition right away, then to transmit the data requires about 20 times the amount of uh, bandwidth that you would need in order to transmit low def. And you described this as a huge challenge for the military to all of a sudden have to build just like the infrastructure, you know, the servers, the the modems, the the piping, the wiring, all that stuff to just keep up with. Well, to keep up with it, because when they lose connectivity or when they lose the link, Uh, then someone dies. So it's not like, oh, damn, I have to reboot my computer. These are matters of life and death. That's really the expense behind the drones. And so let's, again, go back to our predator, which is overflying uh, Pakistan. It's able, if it's launched, say, from southern Afghanistan to loiter over a target area or a set of targets that are designated, what's called the target deck, uh, for about 22 hours or so. So almost for a 24-hour period, it's able to loiter. It could stay over one spot for 22 hours. Why do you choose that word loiter as opposed to surveil? Well, because that's really the key distinction with drones. Because absent a man on board, uh, absent an orbit, which is what satellites do, uh, it's able to stay in one place. And the military term itself is loitering. It is. It is. But it implies that it's going without it looking for a specific thing, <laughs> that it's just there hanging out and hoping that somewhere in what it gathers is a piece of actionable intelligence. It, it, I think it does connote that. And I play with the word throughout the book because I say, you know, we could say that this is somebody being a hooligan. But the truth of the matter is that what corner it goes to hang out on and what building it looks at and who it's evaluating is a, is the product of a, a meticulous targeting world. As you were researching this book, were there any capabilities that surprised you? Uh, I think that the ability uh, to detect and characterize humans – with hyperspectral imagery and with other kinds of uh, biometric means uh, from drones or even from space, 
uh, really surprised me. And we're just on the cutting edge of that world right now. Was this an element in, in identifying bin Laden? Because they were, they were doing some height imaging and so forth to see if the, the tall man in that compound was him. You know, if it was, it's certainly a secret. But let me give you an idea of some of the uh, fancy footwork we did in the, in the mission against bin Laden. Right. Uh, there's a, uh, a drone that flies that has a particular black box on it. And that black box is able to uh, simulate uh, being a cell tower. So when it goes into an, a region, let's say if right here at 65th and Columbus Avenue in, in, in New York City. Don't give City, away our location oh on the podcast. Oh, my God. Uh, People are listening. Um, so they look at what is the uh, cell phone signal, which is being uh, transmitted in that area. And so during the bin Laden raid, one of the uh, uh, top secret uh, methods that they used was that they they believed that the courier, the person who had brought them to the compound in the first place, uh, was the only armed person inside uh, the compound. And they wanted to know where he was. So with a drone flying overhead, somebody at the NSA made a phone call that emulated the brother of the courier's cell phone, so that when his phone rang, it looked like his brother was calling him on the cell phone. He picked up his cell phone, and they were able to immediately uh, triangulate, if you will, but with, in a much more sophisticated way, exactly where he was inside the compound. Inside the compound. Correct. This room on this floor. Yes, so that they were then able to uh, uh, make sure that the SEALs knew exactly where he was inside the compound. So th that now that's a very sophisticated and, and, and painstaking process, but that gives you a sense of what we are in now able to do. And it also gives you a sense, and here's, you know, sort of my lament in this book. It gives you a sense that when we think of fighting ISIS or we think of fighting Al-Qaeda, it's almost as if this is all we're able to do. This is that, that we're all, that we've become so good at this kind of targeted killing and the weapons have become so precise that, that we mistake our ability to find targets and destroy them with an actual military strategy. And that's why I think these wars never end. That's the sort of underpinning theme of your whole book is this infatuation with data that has blinded people to a larger sense of how we deploy our power. One of the things I learned in doing this book was that in the end, it didn't come out the way I expected it to. You know, I, I learned about the way that the intelligence world works today that was different than what my assumptions were. And it alarms me that we are so IT and information oriented at the expense of the classic academic sort of uh, focus of what intelligence means to people. That intelligence to people means wisdom. It means that there are real experts who have real expertise on, on countries, on people. And, and I'm not saying that there aren't them, but we haven't increased those by the thousands in the last 15 years. We've increased the number of IT technicians working on, 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 on data in the last 15 years. And so we haven't gotten much smarter. And so when we think about soft power versus hard power, winning the battle of hearts and minds versus winning the, the destructive battle. One of the reasons why we don't do very well is that we haven't 
equally invested in the brain power that's necessary in order to fight and win in this kind of environment. We really have transformed in a in a way that it's hard to describe, but here's here's how I'll try to do it. In the in the from the Vietnam era through about Operation Desert Storm, which was the first Iraq war in 1991, the ratio of soldiers, shooters, to uh, intelligence people was about 100 to 1. So there were 100 soldiers to every one intelligence officer or analyst. And so in your typical battalion, there was probably uh, an S2 and a small intelligence shop of maybe five people uh, supporting uh, 1,800 guys. (laughs) That, That was the ratio. Today, it's the opposite. There are about 100 intelligence people to every fighter. It's the opposite. And so for everyone who's out there on the edge of this network, carrying a gun or flying an airplane or even flying a a drone, there are 100 People in the IT world, in, 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 in the communications world, in the processing world, in the storage world, in the analysis world, in the, in the data crunching world, who are supporting them. But are you saying we don't need that many people? No, I'm not saying we don't need. I'm just saying that the, 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 the military has transformed from an industrial organization to an information organization. And as a result of that, we don't really even have the language or the arithmetic anymore uh, to begin, begin to describe uh, what kind of a military structure we need or what kind of a military force we need or what kind of a strategy we need to follow on from there because it's so new that we haven't figured out what to do with it yet. Describe and you're, I think you're part of, and I think most people listening are aware of a complicated and tough conversation, as you just said, that's happening around drones right now. But one thing you also point out is that within the military and perhaps within this administration, drones are a no-brainer. It's just the simplest and most straightforward answer, and no one is wringing their hands over it inside the military. Lots of people are wringing their hands. There's real interests at play and lots of people are thinking about it. So what the nature of our military is going to be in the future is really a live question. The fact that we use drones so uh, predominantly now is, is more a question of economy of force, okay? Look, it's the easiest way for us to kill targets. And as long as we're out there killing targets, then the best thing to use is the most efficient means to do so. But there's something called just war. And I hate to be too philosophical here, but, you know, war is a part of human activity. And because it's been a part of human activity for the past 6,000 years, uh, we've established a set of protocols and a set of rules of how to fight wars. In, in, In fighting a just war, it's not just about how you fight the war. It's about what you're fighting for. And, and so whether it be the type of war that we're fighting today or World War II in which we wanted total defeat of the Nazi enemy and, 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 and Imperial Japan, you have to have a means of restoring peace. 
the, the very definition of just war, going back to the earliest times, are you don't fight in such a way that you can't restore the peace. You have to figure out some moral guidelines in which to fight so that when the war is over, you're able to restore peace. And right now, we don't have that picture. And so, and so no one can say, where does it end? And so since no one can say, where did it end? Even President Obama, who came into office promising, we're out of Iraq, we're out of Afghanistan, we're closing Guantanamo, we're doing all these things, and none of it has really occurred. The fact of the matter is that we continue to fight this war. We continue to do this day-to-day targeting because we have not been able to have an intellectual or a moral discussion in our society as to what constitutes a just war in this information age. But are you saying the unmanned nature of war makes it easier to forestall that conversation? Absolutely. And we've seen that in the past 14 years, the cascading of generation upon generation of information and and black box and technology has really uh, uh, made it even more complicated. Okay, that brings us to the end of the clip show. Thanks for listening. Maybe you heard something you hadn't caught before. And again, if there's someone out there who you want to convert into a What's the Point listener, send them this episode. Also, on the website, there are links to the full episodes for these. And I also posted a list of recent podcast episodes from other shows that I've really enjoyed, and I think you might too. There's also a list of a few shows that I'm looking forward to binging on and catching up on over the long weekend. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. Sarah Patterson is our intern. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me at podcasts at 538.com. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. Find a link to download the theme to this podcast on our website. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with a new episode next week. See you soon.